Paul Litt is a professor of 20th century Canadian culture and political history at Carleton University, where he is cross-appointed between the Department of History and the School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies. Earlier in his career, he was a historian at the Ontario Heritage Foundation, now Ontario Heritage Trust, the province's lead heritage agency, a policy advisor at the Ontario Ministry of Culture, and a freelance historian for a variety of history projects. Paul's teaching includes courses on Canadian cultural studies, cultural policy, and nationalism. His books include The Muses, the Masses, and the Massey Commission, a study of the Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences, 1949-51, and articles on other aspects of Canadian cultural policy. You're also the author of Trudeau-mania, which won an award a couple of years ago. Oh, yes, I am. Thanks. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Happy to be here. Thanks. We are going to talk about government policy as it pertains to books and the history of it in Canada. I'd like to get into it detail-wise once the Massey Commission comes in. But prior to that, you say in, in your article in the History of the Book in Canada, Volume 3, that the Canadian government did little to support the book in the half-century following the First World War. Mm-hmm. Why is that? A variety of reasons, and maybe it would be helpful if I just stepped back and gave you a kind of periodization overview of, you know, which is a bit of a simplification in these phases that in cultural policy that I'll lay out for you overlap. Things don't disappear overnight with the flip of a switch or anything. But I think it's easy to, or it's helpful to generalize uh, about different eras. There's a fellow historian of mine named Ryan Edwardson who wrote a book called Canadian Content. And he summarized these three phases as um, Masseyism, and then New Nationalism, and then Cultural Industries. Before I talk about the first phase, the factors in play, the different factors in play that vary and distinguish one phase from another would be nationalism and as a subset of that, what kind of nationalism we're talking about. Because earlier on it was more of a British nationalism, a conception of Canada as a British North American country. Later on it becomes more autonomous, like an autonomous Canadian nationalism. After the after the World Wars, I guess, we yeah, get exactly. stature. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. that's a process too, it's not something yeah. that happens all at once, but yeah. it's a gradual transition. The other issue I think we're talking about here, because we're talking about government policy, is uh, state intervention. So in the earlier phase, it would have been a laissez-faire, small government regime. Yeah. And it's not until the mid-20th century that you get large-scale government intervention, or at least um, acceptance of state intervention to a much greater degree. Which really is the Massey Commission, right? That's 51. Yeah. Run. What's the other f- things we should be taking into account here? Notions of culture. Like yeah. What is culture? Right. And early on, the people who mattered in making decisions about culture would have thought of it in terms of high culture or that culture was about edification. It was yeah. about improving yourself. Later on in the 20th century, you get a lot more acceptance of mass culture as culture. Culture can be entertainment, too. It doesn't just, necessarily have to have these moral overtones to it. So would you say that just because 
books are are books they're they automatically fit into high culture in this uh, view? yes yes I think yeah. so that early on one of the remarkable things here is that you know nobody had a policy for the book really until what the 1970s no specific policies and it reminds me of that Marshall McLuhan quotation about fish not knowing that they're in water because they don't have any anti-environment to contrast it with to right. make them realize it so I think for cultural nationalists who were generally Canadian intellectuals the book would have been something they just took for granted. But they also uh, tied it into national identity, right? Absolutely. You know, we've got those three factors now, nationalism, state intervention. What we're talking about really is different type of media, which would be the, f the fourth factor. Like new media have a huge effect on these different phases of cultural policy. Mm -hmm. And books are old media. They're not even considered to be media, really, because everybody is so comfortable with print culture it's been around forever and this is just the way things are so yeah. in that early phase it's very much like that so that's that explains in part why there wasn't any government support for the book it yeah. just it's just it was yeah. part of the environment they didn't perceive it as in need yeah yeah exactly and i would see that first phase is going from like pre-confederation up to oh the second world war and then um, roughly the next phase from the Second World War up to, let's say, as a significant watershed, the first free trade agreement. And then the cultural industries phase follows after that. If we look at that interwar period and up until and around the Massey Commission, you say there's only a handful of Canadian publishers who, as good corporate citizens, moved by nationalist ideals, published Canadian works more often than not at a loss. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so that's one of the remarkable things about that interwar period is that, you know, you have government cultural policies emerging now for the first time. Mm -hmm. The government tried to put in place a tariff to, uh, to protect Canadian magazines against American competition. That was short-lived, but it was effective while it was in place. Would they do put tariffs in? Uh, they just raised the tariff against American magazines. Yeah. But all the heavy lifting for cultural nationalism in Canada was being done by uh, the private sector at that time. So that would be people like Lorne Pierce and, yeah, and yeah. To, well, Jack McClellan comes in 47-ish, yeah, yeah, late yeah. 40s. But there are a number of other publishing houses too which have very nationalistic um, goals. Like Some who? of them don't last very long. Yeah, who, who would they be? <laughs> I can't remember the name of one in, in Ottawa. Oh yes, yeah, the Graphic Press. Graphic Press, yeah. thank you. Yeah, and it, was, yeah. It's, uh, it proclaimed that it would publish nothing but Canadian that's works. Right. And that's, where did it get, where did that get them, right? <laughs> yeah, they were in business like 25 <laughs> to 32 or something. Something, like, something that. like that. Yeah, yeah. and they, yeah. their books are a bit clunky, but it was still laudable. I yeah. mean. Another thing that we can map onto this too is like peaks in Canadian nationalism, right? Because yeah. you have um, an efflorescence of Canadian nationalism following Confederation. There's kind of another uptick with the Laurier boom, and yeah. then following the First World War, in which there was a lot, a very strong cultural nationalism in Canada, and the same thing again after the Second World War. And a lot of that comes from Canadians realizing through interaction with the other allies that they are really a distinct people. A lot of veterans come back and have that conviction. But there's also in the First World War in the 1920s, that environment out of which graphic press came, a lot of annoyance that the Americans are taking credit for having won the war. Yeah. So there's a dissonance there because Canadians are always consuming American cultural products and they're being told by them that 
the Americans won the war when they weren't even in the war for most of the yeah, time right. when the going was tough. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, they just kind of swept in and claimed victory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so you can not, see that impulse not just yeah. in publishing, but also in, uh, well, that magazine tariff I was telling you about in, in theater and in uh, other sectors of the arts as well. You also point to the fact that literature is tied to identity, to national identity, but it also plays a role in articulating the values of li liberal democracy in confrontation with fascism and communism. That'd be mm -hmm. the, the end of the Second World War. That's, that's later on. I would say that the importance of literature in this first phase, if we associate it, for instance, with the Confederation effect on nationalism, is that it's literature where every, every cultural nationalist assumes they're going to see the expression of the Canadian identity. You know, so Canada here we get the state, then by virtue of having a state, it, you start looking for a nation. And so all the pressure really is on the field of literature because they're accustomed again to seeing national identities or national cultures primarily represented by their literature. That's what you know, the Confederation poets are thinking about, um, Canada First, all of those late 19th century manifestations of cultural nationalism. Yeah. But ironically, it doesn't come really in literature. It comes with the group of seven. It's just eight. what I was going to say. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that yeah. throws everybody off. Only later will it come in the 1960s. Have you ever heard the term the long-awaited spring? It's used in Canadian literary criticism to represent that theme. Okay. Yeah. You say that support for libraries was the first subsidy for books. Yeah, and that was at the municipal level. Provinces get involved in libraries later on, more in the mid-20th century. So if you're thinking about the federal government, which most, you know, we're kind of talking about federal cultural yeah. policy primarily, yeah. I mean, they don't have anything for the book per se. There are tariff barriers and there are, there's copyright. And the copyright issue is always vexed because Canada really doesn't have, or Canadian authors don't really have great copyright protection. In the early period, they get, you know, Canada gets caught in between Britain and the US. The US has a very strict copyright regime and Britain is not willing to jeopardize its trade relations with the US by having Canada have something equally protective. And it's not until Canada becomes more independent in the 20s that it develops its own copyright act. And even then, you know, authors aren't the um, primary ben beneficiary because it's conceived of as a balance of payments problem. If you know, because so much literature is imported into Canada, royalties would be exported, and so the government doesn't want to do that, so it keeps royalties suppressed somewhat, and that's bad for Canadian writers. Um, can you just unpack that? Well, they're thinking that you know of the economy as a whole. Yeah. They want to have a positive balance of payments, or at least limit the, their negative balance of payments. And so if you had royalties to foreign authors flowing yeah. uh, out of the country all the time higher at a higher royalty rate, that would hurt the balance of payments. And so as a result, Canadian authors who are publishing here are getting less than they could if they had a, a more robust royalty uh, system in the Copyright Act. Doesn't the money go to the publisher and then the publisher pays the author? Uh, yes. I yeah. Guess. Okay. So does that not make sense in the way I explained it? N not to me, no, but... So the, the Canadian government... Well, the revenues go to the, go to the publisher and the publisher pays the royalties to the... To the author. Uh, to the author. That's yeah. right. And so they're coming in, they're, they're, and, and books were 
big business because there wasn't any competition from other media. Um, well, I mean, there are newspapers and magazines, but it's print. Right. And, well, and also, if we're talking about the 1920s, you already have movies coming on board and radio as well. But I guess the point I'm making is if you have a foreign publisher, a foreign-owned publisher, or a foreign author, those royalties are going... They're going uh, offshore, uh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But how, how can the government stop that from happening? Other they than weren't stopping it. They are just lowering royalty rates under, under the Copyright Act. But isn't the royalty rate something that's negotiated between the publisher and the author? Well, it's in the Copyright Act in the 20s somehow. Now you're getting beyond my... Okay. my level of competence okay. to talk about okay. this. Okay, well, the, the, I guess the point is there were a lot of British and American publishers who were sending their books into Canada and the Canadian government or Canadian Canadians weren't benefiting from any of this. Yes, and it's always been thus. Here I am scrambling back to firmer ground because <laughs> you got me wondering with your question about how the royalties worked. But um, generally speaking, the market has always been dominated by foreign publishers yeah, yeah. because of the nature of continental cultural economics. You know, American publishers have a huge market that they can publish to, and you know, the Canadian market is just like an annex to it. Well, and they just have to leave their presses on for 10 more minutes and yes, they've covered our market. Exactly. It just cost them nothing. Yeah. And in Canada, you know, contrasted, you know, it's not just the economies of scale, which are one-tenth the size, but it's also the costs of distribution, yeah. which are higher as well. Yeah, yeah. If, it's, you want to, it, if you want to cover the national territory. it's yeah. yeah, it's never been easy for uh, yeah. literature in Canada. And I guess that would explain why the, po the Confederation poets and others went to the States to get published. Yeah, and to you know make a living from supplementary income as mm -hmm. uh, authors as well. They just couldn't here. Yeah. Which remains the case, I think, really. Yeah, I think that um, to become a successful author in Canada in the last 50, 60 years, the people who have managed it have been in different media, not just in print. You know, mm -hmm. they've been on television or in radio. They've become celebrities and brand names in a way. Yeah. And then you can make your living as an author in Canada, but not mm -hmm. just uh, if you're publishing books alone. Anything else prior to the Massey Commission well, being struck? Well, I think that the first big intervention that we should mention is um, national broadcasting. It speaks to our discussion of why the book wasn't recognized. But here you have a new medium arising. There are movies and the early 20th century and then radio. Yeah. And so it's seen as something that has to be dealt with because it is new and kind of uh, foreign. And it's also seen as invasive in the Canadian context because a lot of the radio coming in is coming, in, it's coming across the border. Right. And networks are actually penetrating into Canada. And most of our population is just a strip along that border anyway. Exactly. So. It becomes recognized as you know what we would now call a cultural industry earlier than books do for that reason because of the novelty of the medium okay. and the issues that it clearly puts on the public agenda, and that's a long story that's been told before. I'm just noting it here as you know a major um, and startling really intervention by the government at a time when laissez-faire was still the accepted uh, approach. Yeah. And the other one would then be um, in an interesting way film because it's not feature film. But documentary film, NFB, where, and yeah. where you have yeah these 
provincially and federally you have documentary film units being set up and then ultimately at the National Film Board. And one of the interesting things here is that it seems that feature film is, is deemed to be, well, seen to be irredeemable. Radio is seen as a bit of an omnibus for culture. You can carry edifying content and Canadian content on radio. Documentary film is sort of seen the same way. Like you can produce serious <laughs> educational uh, material in documentary film, but it's it's not like that fluff that uh, titillates the masses, which is the feature films and coming from Hollywood. So they don't address feature film, and fe attempts to set a, to start a feature film industry in Canada fail in this period. And it's only documentary film, which is state supported. So I guess become, the, I guess Canadians Canadians would go go down to Hollywood and make it it's like all the, all our comedians go down this uh, absolutely yeah and this and this is something that applies you know to uh, the authors you mentioned before yes yes and in a way that's gratifying to Canadians because they get recognition abroad you know that person is Canadian international recognition gratifies nationalism as well okay so why was the Massey Commission struck then two big issues one was what to do with broadcasting, because the original broadcasting system had the CBC controlling the whole system, and there were a few private broadcasters who were kept uh, in the system because they could provide local service more efficiently than the CBC. But the CBC was at the time what the CRTC is today, as well as a broadcasting system, okay. as well as a broadcaster, it was the regulator. So in the post-war period, you have the private interests those that are already radio stations and operating as radio stations and those who want to get into the broadcasting business anticipating television, lobbying for more independence, saying that it's not fair because the CBC is both their competitor and their regulator. Mm. So they're using like a private market model as the ideal. The advent of TV, too, is, is another big thing. Are we going to extend the public broadcasting system to television? Okay. The second big issue was federal funding for universities. There was a lot of pressure on universities as the veterans enrolled in the post-war period, and uh, Canadians generally wanted the promise of a university education for their children. And enrollment pressures were high, and funding for universities was uh, low because it was just provincial. So even though this wasn't in the official mandate of the commission. Mm -hmm. It was kind of an exploratory probe into whether the federal government could get involved in funding universities. Yeah, there's a jurisdictional <laughs> concern Absolutely. too, right? Absolutely, yeah. because the provinces have rights over education. So, so it's those were the two big things, but then it got bundled up into a kind of general probe into culture because politically they thought that would gratify a lot of potential NDP supporters who might vote liberal. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, and as far as books are concerned, not much mention of them. No, other than so the there you go. Our, you know, my argument again is um, evident in the in the Massey Commission's deliberations. They talk about artists and scholars, and they talk about broadcasting a lot, and they talk about film and various sectors. But there's never a concern for the health of the Canadian publishing industry. Obviously, though huge amounts of funding for universities creates a new level of literacy Absolutely. and yeah. and yeah. Uh, in all of these discussions that we're having you can ask well <clears throat> what are there might not be direct support but what are the indirect consequences yeah. of the policy and the one you just mentioned is i think 
one of the most overlooked and the most uh, significant of the Massey Commission's impacts, which is the growth of the university system in Canada. Yeah. That breeds you know, a demand for books, for textbooks, and it creates a whole market for the university graduates who come out of universities are going to be a market for Canadian cultural products thereafter. You, you make an interesting point here. You say uh, at around the time of the Massey Commission, Canadian publishers only issued a few dozen literary and trade titles a year, and there were only about two dozen bona fide bookstores yeah, across the country. Yeah, that's shocking, isn't it? It really is. I think yeah. there were more, perhaps, earlier, yeah. if you go back to the 20s. Right. Um, and then, you know, the Depression and the war taking its toll. Like, for instance, if we think of Lauren Pierce at Ryerson Press, I can't imagine he's only publishing. <laughs> I mean, you'd think he'd be publishing that many himself per year. Exactly, um, yeah. So that, but that's it's a startlingly low number. Where, where'd it, you get that number, do you recall? I think it's in the uh, commission's report. It's right itself. in the report itself, yeah. okay. And so, you know, today, even today, we're, the ratio, I think, that they mentioned in the report was three, and this is an, a piece of... Uh, this is a statistic that is more reassuring. Yeah. That for every three foreign books a Canadian read, they read one yeah. uh, Canadian book. We'd be happy to have that today. Today. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff coming out right now that's showing that it's, yeah, it's less than like, half that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, the university uh, boom. That's, uh, that's It does support, the Massey Commission does um, support a national library, though, and helps get yeah. that delivered. Yes, which again is kind of startling, isn't it? Yeah. Not until 1952 did yeah. we have a national library. And it supports the Canada Council, you know, it, it proposes, it recommends the, can, can, the establishment of the Canada Council, yeah. which takes years to get established because of this ambivalence about state intervention in areas of culture again. I see. And so the Canada Council will give grants to authors, but... That's never its biggest uh, pay, pay packet. No, uh, and in fact, it's a, it's a couple of super rich guys, some sort of uh, inheritance tax that windfall, yeah. right? That that's how. That, yeah, that's yeah. One of them was kill them. I forget the other one. They okay. die, and the government's going to get all this money. And one of the reasons that you know right wing cabinet ministers in the Saint Laurent government don't want to fund culture. Because they don't want to take it out of general revenues. They don't want to be seen as you know spending ta tax dollars in this way. So the the pro Canada Council faction uses this windfall as a way to skirt that argument. Say, hey, we just got you know, all this money. We're not but, spending ta well. It, it is taxpayers, but it's not coming out. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, okay. And not coming out of what we predicted as our uh, as our revenue. Yeah, and the money interestingly gets split between federal funding for universities. Uh, like I think it's a capital fund for building and the Canada Council. The money is to endow the Canada Council. Okay, it's it is interesting. I know maybe a lot of politicians felt that t a couple things. One, a nation's literature was there specifically to express the special character of its people. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that maybe they figured that literature and, and great writing is, isn't something that should be government funded. It's something that geniuses can't help Absolutely. themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know. Exactly. I, I think that there's that notion that, you know, the, the, the creative genius of the author is the only genuine source of um, a real expression of Canadian identity. And uh, beyond and, that, there's all of these concerns about 
government interfering with freedom of expression or freedom of the press that you know are long-standing in an Anglo-liberal culture and those are uh, preventing people from accepting this as well so just to uh, get back to a point that I hinted at earlier in a way you can look at the Massey Commission as the last hurrah of this old hands-off <laughs> um, <laughs> well, fairism um, they make some interventions but they also I think the crucial difference is they don't really interfere with, or they, they don't engage with cultural industries much. Well, uh, they endorse, except with the exception of public broadcasting, but um, that's already an established institution. But they're not going out there and saying, we need you know Canadian movies to combat Hollywood. And they don't say anything about the publishing business, okay. which is odd. They're not thinking in those terms. They're still thinking in a kind of... Uh, Matthew Arnold style about what culture is and that um, you know it's something that individuals should pursue and in terms of their own self-improvement. It's interesting that the Canada Council, the the breakdown of the funding was mostly to the performing arts so like ballet and Mm -hmm. theater and opera I guess Mm -hmm. 639 thousand dollars versus $10,000 $10,000 for books and writing. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure exactly what those numbers, I don't know if that's annual or what, but it just shows you that, again, books are just, uh, and, and writing is not on the radar. Well, and they're also, again, just to reiterate another point, that's more evidence for it. That, yeah. Um, they're thinking in terms of Canada looking like it's got a civilized culture in comparison to other you know, Western nations that it emulates, more long-standing nations that it wants to be included among. And so they're funding, you know, symphony orchestras and ballet companies, which are yeah. very high-cost uh, endeavors. Yeah, very elitist, not, too. Yeah, it's, it's high, yeah, high culture and high cost. And they're using them as cultural diplomacy as well as for domestic edification. What does that mean? They want uh, to tour them abroad to show that Canada... <laughs> That's so sophisticated. We have culture <laughs> as well. Right. Just like yours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So it, the Governor General's awards are taken over by Canada Council in 59, uh, literary awards. And it gets a bit better for writers because after the first decade, so that's 57 to 67 thereabouts. Apparently, this is, again, according to your article in the history of the book in Canada, by the end of that first decade, a million dollars has been distributed to writers. However, if we look at the breakdown for 68-69, it was $544,000 to literary out of $8,760,000 in total. That's so interesting, too, when you consider how, you know, people would still be expecting national culture to be expressed in literature. As much yes. Literature, that literature would be one of the primary ways in which it would be expressed. Here, in terms of, they, again, are not <laughs> prioritizing it for funding, perhaps because it's a, an extension of what we've been discussing earlier, that, you know, to an extent, print culture is just kind of expected to be there as a kind of commonsensical thing that is generated by uh, a society. And again, I think it's this t- trying to show off, too, to, as you say. Oh, to the, the other uh, disbursements. Yeah. To the world, you yeah. know, just saying, you know, we've got culture here, look. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, but we don't really pay attention to the literature. It's odd. 
What will happen in the 60s, though, is that despite the fact that they're not getting funded all of that well, you do have the long-awaited spring arriving. You have this sudden efflorescence under the stimulus of a more autonomous nationalism. Well, yes, but it, it stimulated as a result of a crisis because of Ryerson mm-hmm. being sold, Gage and Ryerson being sold to Americans. Well, you're, you're right. In terms of what precipitates the policy response, it's absolutely it. But think of the context before that. You know, Canadian writing and Canadian nationalism is um, on the upswing and Canadian writing is suddenly getting a lot of attention. There's been a Canadianization movement in the arts and um, in the universities, which is putting Canadian content in. There's a, there's the new Canadian library that started up in 58. Absolutely. And there's the Carleton uh, Library series here, which was the nonfiction equivalent of it. Yeah. And Jack McClellan really was putting out a lot of great books in the 60s. Absolutely. And so, you know, you've got this really happening cultural nationalist scene in Canada in the 1960s. And it's all in the context of that concern about where America is headed and the and concern about War. foreign foreign investment. So it's economic nationalism yeah. and it's cultural nationalism. And then this crisis in the book uh, publishing industry comes along and it's both at the same time, economic and cultural nationalism. So it's a fusion yeah. of the two and it can't help but be uh, a cause set up at that point. I just want to quote uh, Northrop Fry here. Now, this is him in 1980. He said, I became an advisory member of the CRTC in 1968 when the Broadcasting Act still made a good deal of sense. The feeling was that the distribution of books, newspapers, movies, and magazines had been largely sold out to American interests and that if television went the same way, there would be no Canadian identity left. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in cultural policy studies recently that assumption has been questioned. How's that? There have been scholars in the last 30 years who've said that a nation doesn't really need to have a creative culture to differentiate itself and to sustain itself, that really what you need only is like a functioning political culture. Yeah, Um, well, values, right? Yeah. I mean, this all fits into Trudeau's post-national conversation. Yeah. And, and diversity into the idea of and, and to the idea of civic nationalism as well, which yeah. you know reduces it to those things that are most people have in common as citizens of the state, and um, doesn't try to engage with those things that they would have that would differentiate them from each other and cause conflict, such as their ethnic traditions or any other kind of identity marker. Mm-hmm. So. In, um, We're jumping ahead a bit here, though. Yeah, so maybe we should leave that. Yeah, for, for now. just for now. Okay, but yeah. that is. But I, I, I think we should highlight that that is the underlying assumption here that you need to tell stories about Canada to Canadians if you're going to have a viable nation. Yeah, it's a moment of high na- high nationalism too, and one in which the British North American identity aspect is gone forever. That British connection is no longer a defining characteristic of the Canadian identity. Mm. They're looking for something to supplant it. And so there's a lot of identity theorizing going on in the post-war period that's um, contributing to this. um, Yeah, why is it so important that Canadians have an identity? Why is that so important? What's the the fallout? What's the danger of not having it? well, it's a romantic nationalist um, notion that you know people have this legitimacy as a community because they've been together over 
a millennia. In Canada's case, obviously not that, but that's the assumption usually in romantic nationalism. And uh, you know, the culture is the manifestation of those things that they share together. Right. And it's also important in the Canadian context to stem the threat of Americanization or continentalism. And so there's a need to define what makes Canadians English Canadians. This whole conversation we're having is mostly about English Canada. Uh, what makes English Canadians distinct from Americans? Yeah, but I, again, what what's the problem of us just living as, as a bunch of diverse sort of ethnic communities, yeah. being good to good neighbors, uh, getting involved in politics, the thing ticking along just fine? Why do we have to have some kind of identity? Well, now we're circling back to that <laughs> that conversation we were having about what happened, you know, the uh, later, to have good about later on. we ha Canada has to be, somehow, in the minds of Canadians, in order to be a legitimate nation, it has to be like those Western European nations that uh, gave rise to its first settlers. And so it's trying to do it in that in that mold where, you know, the French have an identity, the English have an identity. And these are all constructions that are part of the nationalist system. But Canada has, has modeled itself on founding European peoples and um, subsequent immigration. But but you haven't answered my question. What, Why do you need an identity? Yeah, and what's the danger of not having one? Uh, well, the, the next step is that an identity fosters unity, and it justifies the independent sovereignty of the state. In the other idea words, is you have a coherent people. Yeah. And the, the state is not there as just some kind of arbitrary um, administration of a territory. It's there because it expresses and represents the, um, and this is a democratic notion too, the, the interests of the people. And so you have to identify who that people are and what makes right. them a co coherent uh, entity. But what if you just say the people that live in this geographic area and they get along well together? That, that would be good enough for me. And I think that's where you start to get later on, particularly after the effects of uh, multiculturalism and uh, identity politics in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, hmm. when this concept of civic nationalism comes to the fore. Okay. Oh. Foreign-owned firms accounted for 70% of sales and only 15% of all new books about Canada and 3% of all the works of Canadian literature uh, all of which tended to be for the textbook market. So that's right around 1970. Hmm. When the crisis hits. That's right. That's uh, coming out of the Ontario Royal Commission on Book Publishing. Okay. The commission positioned book the book trade as a line of defense against Americanism. Again, the book says being a kind of a bastion of Canadian culture. And then the, the Canada Council block grants came in in 1972. And a, a book purchase program, an export marketing assistance program, a book promotion and distribution program, a book week. Mm -hmm. Partly in response to, I guess, to the commission, but also the Parti Quebecois was, uh, was gaining strength. And there was a, a bunch of translation grants that were then introduced. Mm -hmm. So two things there. One is the uh, national unity issue is important in what happens in the 1960s. Yeah. And so this embrace of 
you know, cultural industries, which begins in the 1960s with Canadian content regulations for private broadcasters in TV and then in radio in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and with um, subsidy provided through the creation of the Canadian Film Development Corporation and so on. It's interesting, like film and TV are getting uh, <laughs> more attention earlier yeah. than, uh, before the book, before this book crisis comes. So that is spurred by an acceptance now of mass culture as a legitimate cultural uh, interest for cultural nationalists, okay. and by the uh, Quiet Revolution, after which the Quebec government establishes a ministry of culture, which Canada itself has never had and has been leery of because it smacks of totalitarianism. But suddenly you're in a competition between the federal government and the provincial government of Quebec for who controls the culture. Um, And so they start to get much more structured and deliberate about their cultural policies at the federal level. And that leads us to that um, crisis in the publishing industry in the early 70s when Mm. for the first time books are recognized as a sector where you should really have a cultural industries policy. And Mm. all the things that you're talking about, all of those different programs that you enumerated, they apply much the same kind of formula of subsidy and regulation with a bit of promotion thrown in. So you're going to subsidize the Canadian uh, industry. So, sorry, this means... You can regulate to exclude foreign comp- competition in some ways. Okay. Well, yeah, so there was money going to the writers, but there wasn't that much going to the publishers, and now that's changing. Is that what you think? Yeah, and so it's looked at not as, you know, you're not just giving grants to artists, but you're supporting the whole... Stock infrastructure. E- yeah, economic infrastructure upon which their livelihood depends. Okay. And so this is where you get a transition from how the Massey Commission thought about culture to the cultural industries approach. The difference is that that determination that it be for nationalist purposes to create Canadian content and to create a superior culture, like it should still be good cultural content that's edifying, those are the um, carryover values from the Massey era. Whereas now laissez-faire is gone, state intervention is in. And when is this? In the 60s. In the 1960s, it becomes, you know, with all of the uh, radical ferment of the 60s, it becomes untenable to maintain hierarchies of taste that support high culture. And so there's, you know, a lot of tearing down of uh, taste hierarchies and uh, a proclamation that this is the the new democratic era for culture. Well, you look at uh, Coach House Press, and there's just an explosion of all sorts of cool books that are coming out. So there is... Magazines and so on, and that that stuff is happening. They're getting funding, right? But we haven't touched on how they're getting that funding then. Is it through through the Canada Council or or, Um, provinces? The Canadian Book Funder, its predecessor, came on stream around the late 70s. But the, it was 65 that uh, Coach has Yeah, paid. I'm not sure where they're getting their money. I'm sure they were getting government grants from yeah. somewhere. Yeah, they were. But there yeah. wasn't you know, a deliberate, large-scale publishing program run by... Um, there might have been grants coming out of the Canada Council, too. Yeah. But later on, you'll have schemes that are uh, run by Heritage Canada, or the Canadian... What, yeah, which yeah. ministry am I trying to think yeah, of? I, For, I the think Secretary of State, and then Canadian Heritage. Heritage, that will fund publishers with... Uh, Know, annual grants, right? Uh, that's not happening. I don't. Th- 
but there are other ways in which um, I think a lot of those small entities got government support by hook or by crook. Yeah, some time. kind of employment grants or... Okay, so... Th- but so they didn't have just good writers, they had good grant writers. <laughs> but really then, uh, 60s and 70s, pretty good pretty good time for, for publishing. And But then we get into the 80s and then the free trade agreement. Mm-hmm. which put restrictions on new government cultural initiatives. It was great for the economy. There were certainly there was uh, objections to this this part of the free trade agreement that mm-hmm. rest- restricted cultural initiatives. I think the deal was that Canada reserved the right to have its cultural policies and subsidize right. and, the gar- and the Americans said fine but we reserve the right to retaliate. <laughs> Which put a damper on yeah, it. Yeah, puts a damper on it. Well, how would they things, retaliate then? Oh, you know, they could um, just slap a tariff on something else. Okay. Uh, or okay. whatever, you know, yeah. and, and implement some other kind of protectionist policy. Right. So just in general terms, you have to remember that if you take the 1988 election as a referendum on free trade, the majority of Canadians opposed it. And the way I like to, in general terms, this is a kind of a massive simplification, Yeah. but the high tide of 60s nationalism coincided with the completion of what we have as a welfare state now, and those social programs being put in place, and there was immediately uh, a right-wing counter-attack initiated, which co- falls under the rubric of neoliberalism today. Yeah. And that neoliberal discourse was circulating throughout the 70s, and into the 80s, and it hadn't yet been f- fully accepted as common sense at the time of the free trade agreement because most Canadians weren't buying into it. Right. They still wanted their uh, peaceable kingdom at that point. Which meant what exactly? Policies that include the ones we're talking about to support Canadian culture, mm-hmm. but they also wanted Medicare prote- protected. Yeah, you know, they wanted their social programs of all sorts protected, and these had these were symbolic differentiators between Canada for them. Know, and yeah. the United States, because the, the Americans were seen to be much more of an individualistic, everyone for themselves society. Dog eat dog. This is a key identity marker of that new Canadian nationalism. Would you say then that support for culture was significantly higher in the general population? Support for funding of culture mm-hmm. was higher back then than it is now? I would say so, because you can argue the extent to which that neoliberal discourse was influential at that time, but over decades and decades of it becoming more than just talk, but also, you know, practices and yeah. institutions and everything else, yeah. it takes a, a, a real hold on uh, government policy. And globalization means that it, it's become part of the um, prescription for being competitive economically in the international uh, marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make sure that your overhead is lower so your taxes will be lower and so you can't support those programs as robustly as you might otherwise. Yeah. And so the, the sovereignty that the state has to uh, protect and promote those things that make Canada distinct is yeah. uh, eroded throughout this period. And so by the time you get into the early 21st century, I think it's really full-on neoliberalism, but it's a process that takes some time because in an interesting way, Canadians are more resistant to it than British or Americans because they've embedded um, the welfare state and all of that into their identity and, 
in that moment of high nationalism in the late 60s. Just as an aside, I'd say from about 58 to 75, mm-hmm. fantastic books being published. Uh, not that there weren't after that because technology improved, and mm-hmm. but there are some you know, terrific, terrific books being published during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be before there's, you know, widespread, a large amount yeah. of support for coming from the government for the publishing industry, right? Yeah, funny, isn't it? So it goes back to that um, classic kind of liberal argument that would have prevailed in the 19th century is that this is, you were saying before, it's a product of individual genius or, well, you know, the, the, uh, the, oh. the culture itself. And you, well, I was going to say, it's it, Jack McClellan. You can't force feed it. Yeah, Jack McClellan and uh, Lauren Pierce, these two guys, uh, mm-hmm. they were championing it, and without them, I don't know if it would have been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that view of history, that type of... That individuals the, make a difference? Yeah. Sure, although, you know, they spring up under particular circumstances where other individuals might have done much the same thing in a somewhat different way. Who knows? Yes. You know, there could have been a nationalist at a different publishing house who did it in a different publishing house, for instance. So it is uh, the circumstances as well as the character that are interacting there. During the 70s then, when the the funding started kicking in, Mm -hmm. because it was only from about, what, they say the early 70s then, uh, after the the Ryerson crisis, uh, and that's, people were upset. People really, you know, the population was upset about it. You fast forward a couple of decades, and and McClellan Stewart gets uh, basically given away to the Germans, and mm-hmm. no one cares. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what's happened? I think people have just been worn down by <laughs> the uh, neoliberal version of the new reality, and they think it's an inexorable way the world works, and that the, those old possibilities are foreclosed as a result. That we that government can't afford to do this is that government it? can't afford to do it yeah and you know, we there's also the corollary doctrine that nationalism is inherently bad and reflects a nativistic kind of uh, belligerence right. that uh, has brought only terrible things upon the world and that we're now part of this brave new globalized uh, globalized world but it's 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 a common sense about the way the world works which isn't necessarily true right that before that Canada had a more mixed public and private sector economy with a lot of government involvement in various sectors and Canada did all right. You know, Canadians might have paid some small price in terms of uh, prosperity yeah. to have more independence, but they were also g- gaining from the public goods that were supported by that price. Well, yeah, and in fact, that's the question is like, so what kind of life do you want to live? Do you just mm-hmm. want to sort of focus on work and be happy? You're not paying quite as much tax and that, mm-hmm. you know, you go home, you watch Netflix and the hockey game. Yeah. Well, taxes are a wonderful entry point into that because the whole discussion for right-wing defenders of the new regime is taxes, right? They talk about taxpayers, not yeah. citizens. This is, yeah. you know, we're creating jobs and... Um, taxes are seen to be inherently bad because yeah. they're uh, an imposition upon the citizens' freedom and their right to their own the, the, pro- the proceeds of their own work and so on. Yeah. Nobody dares to defend taxes in public rhetoric, public political rhetoric nowadays. No, no well, Bernie's trying, but let's <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. let's see how that works. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's a big a big difference. I think that the problem is that the neoliberal 
narrative is pretty simplistic and moralistic. You know, you mm. work hard and you get what you you deserve. The contrary philosophy is much harder to um, explain to people. Even well, if it might be in their best interest, they can't see it. Well, when you think of it, like, but culture makes for a, an interesting place mm-hmm. in which to live, and that attracts more interesting people. And yeah. uh, a barren cultural landscape pushes people away, mm-hmm. and uh, it just stays barren. So what do you want uh, as, a, as an environment, as a society? Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about this period, and you just reminded me of it, is that uh, what you're saying is is one of the arguments that's made for culture and cultural policy in mm-hmm. the late um, 20th, early 21st centuries, which is that, you know, it's good for the economy. We've right. got these highly skilled knowledge workers who, <laughs> you know, if you attract them, then yeah. good things are going to follow in their wake. I tried and So to. I always wondered, you know, when with the rise of neoliberalism and event- eventually it's... Um, embodiment in a straightforward conservative government under Harper that was, you know, that espoused this stuff, yeah. whether cultural policies would survive. And I was surprised that they did because they were represented and represented, presented again as uh, job creation policies right. and economic productivity policies. You yeah. know, you, you've got to be involved in this sector if you want to be a player in the global marketplace. <laughs> In culture. <laughs> in culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or in industries, you know, it could be entertainment industries, but they're deemed as cultural as well. As far as I can tell, there's about $40 million being spent by uh, Canadian Heritage on the book fund. Okay, yeah. yeah. Right now. I don't think there's any kind of criteria. It's just, it's just simply a question of the number of books that you publish, that's, that's what determines how much money you get, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to the, the content of them. Uh, I, yeah. I think yeah. Canada Council is a little bit more interested in literary publishing, yeah. per se. And that uh, policy is relatively recent, I think, isn't it? Like the last few years? Yeah. There's a parallel, um, and this is like the underlying, this is the Achilles heel of the cultural industry's approach. Ryan Edwardson talks about it in his book, Canadian Content, again. And that is that at a certain point, government managers, bureaucrats, or whoever's funding culture from the government, they become reluctant to make value judgments about yeah. what's Canadian and what's not. Yeah. And what, what's a good culture and what's bad culture. <laughs> That's well, because of elitism. Ne- the neocons <laughs> will get all upset about, you know, totalitarianism then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what they do is they just subsidize based on the fact that this is a Canadian owned enterprise yeah, yeah. or that it or that this production fulfills CanCon regulations, which yeah. are, you know, which are a formula of, you know, where the money comes from and who the personnel are and so on and trust them then to express something that is inherently Canadian but what happens in this is in the film business with independent product or co-productions with other production houses from other countries um, is that the the producer is getting subsidized to make something that they're going to put onto the mass international market anyways yeah and it's just another mass culture product which is going to be imitative of the American product yeah, and so it's got you know, nothing why, to do with why Canadian are you putting culture. this money into it in the first place? Yeah. Then, yeah, and so that's why you end up ending up with the rationale of jobs, and it appears that that's what's happened with the book fund now. That I've, it's going on. If you sell the most books, you get more funding. That's right. And in fact, <coughs> a publisher just told me this the other day. If you translate 
Stephen King into French, that that counts. Oh, there you go. That counts. Yeah. yeah. So, I guess my question is: Is uh, are we living in a better country now than we were in the '60s and '70s when it seemed like we were more Canadian? Well, didn't Justin say that Canada is back? <laughs> well, the problem is, you know, and you believe certain, what he says? Yeah, exactly. There's a certain boomer nostalgia danger to this, right? Because we're going back to the uh, formative days of our youth when this discourse was circulating and, and, and we were participating in it, and that mm -hmm. was the Canada that we thought we were in. But it's certainly changed radically since then. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the ability of the government to do anything significant to differentiate Canada is, um, is questionable under current conditions. Most of the identity differentiators are legacy things like Medicare, for instance. Mm. Um, well, like celebrating Canadian literary history, it's nowhere. Yeah. And in current conditions, it goes against this the whole sort of new immigrant diversity message, I guess. Does it? Where it conflicts with it, or maybe you could focus on immigrant immigration literature over the last couple hundred years. Certainly, you could, and I'm not sure it's that so much. Well, there is a danger in trying to articulate the Canadian identity because in, you know, who's in, who's out, you know, mm. it's, it's going to be arbitrary in some way and people are always going to feel excluded from it. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's exactly that kind of danger that has turned the funders away from value judgments. Yeah. You know, it's politically dangerous. Uh, much easier to talk about job creation instead um, in a healthy, vibrant sector or, you know, just uh, generalizations like that instead of ensuring that it's actually the dollars are actually delivering some kind of specific program objective and the other way in which things have deteriorated of course has been neglect of laws that are on the books yeah for american uh, ownership you mean yeah you talked about the mcclellan and stewart uh, debacle and that's what happened there the foreign ownership criteria was ignored uh, it was ignored and they, got, and they got millions and millions of government grants because U of T was put up there, right, a, as the, a, yeah. supposedly the Canadian owner. Right. And there's a parallel, I think, in, uh, in film when Alliance Atlantis sold itself to an American investment house. So you ended up with its entire uh, catalog yeah. in New York, right? And I think they swung some deal with Global... <laughs> so they're building something to bring it back to Canada, but there's yeah. all of the stuff that had been funded by the government over yeah. decades yeah. suddenly was offshore. Yeah, and the same thing happened with McClelland and Stewart, right? Yeah. because the backlist was what now in a German-owned company's hands. That's right, which is just so funny. So they're ripping off. Uh, they're ripping off the, the federal sure. government. But there's other things, you know, like monopoly provisions in the Competition Act. When you look at retail nowadays, and you know, Indigo is the big, big yeah. giant, right? Yeah. And it, it uh, pushes around distributors and publishers, charges, charges extra fees for promotions, which only are affordable by the big publishing houses. And in the, in the publishing sector, like the publishing houses itself, you know, themselves have consolidated into mm -hmm. what, a couple, two or three play, big players, mm -hmm. foreign owned. All of the Canadian publishers are just these small places which have Canadiana as a vocation, not as a business model. And the other area would be in uh, often nowadays, particularly with the convenience of the internet, you can source books 
from outside of Canada and get them faster than you could if you got them internally through, you know, an Ontario or a Quebec-based distribution network. So you're you're trampling on the rights of the Canadian. Uh, there's going to be a, a Canadian entity that has the rights to that work, but you're not buying it from them. <laughs> you're so getting it somewhere else, or you're getting it, you know, downloading it from on in an e ebook form from online. So I mean, there's been a lot of fragmentation in the retailing of books, which has really hurt Canadian publishing. But you know, it's I think it's really encouraging to think that there are all these publishing, these small Canadian publishing houses out there doing this. But three hundred of them, despite so. the, despite mm -hmm. that. Well, they do fund, you know, that that book fund uh, funds about two two hundred or so. Okay. Yeah. Of them. So they're they're getting along with. Uh, I guess subsidy, they, with subsidies. Yeah, which yeah. again is so my question is are we are we sort of better off now than we were 50 25 50 years ago or, or are we in danger of being submerged in the flood? There's a oh actually let me do this. This is this is Northrop Frye here, okay? He talks about this flood. He says, nor could a regulating agency even count on the support of public opinion. When Canada was in the stock phrase flooded with American programs, it was clear that the majority of Canadians preferred the flood to any Canadian arc that would float above it. Mm. It's interesting. There are instances in the past. I'm not sure how I couldn't claim that they're, they represent current Canadian public opinion, but where Canadians have been polled about cultural nationalist issues mm. and have indicated strong support for cultural policies that will you know, foster Canadian culture, but at the same time they don't they don't practice have, it. They don't want to have to consume that culture. Apparently, <laughs> that's right. And, uh, you know, we you refer to it the fact that fewer fewer Canadians are reading Canadian books than it seems. Uh, I don't know yeah. ever or, but it's it's a not a very high percentage. And the the question is, well, why not? And how do we make it easier? And I don't want to prophesize doom here because this concern that you're articulating about our cultural condition it's been the same uh, one the right? same throughout <laughs> it's this whole right. time yeah Canadian, we're still uh, here we're still Canadian standing cultural nationalists have always been worried about this and <laughs> yeah. you know perhaps we're still standing because about because of their concerns about it and what they've done to uh, forestall it so that makes me reluctant to say the end is nigh yeah and all of these factors that I enumerated off the top, they're constantly shifting. Like the technological context, we've seen it shift rapidly in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And people are still coming to terms with what that means. You know, it hasn't really consolidated and stabilized in any kind of coherent fashion yet. Mm -hmm. Well, it's starting to, I would say. Mm -hmm. And people are learning what to do with it. But it's hard, it's hard to foresee conditions which would uh, spell the end for Canadian culture. It's just as hard to foresee conditions which could lead to some kind of renaissance. You know, it's tied in with this uh, fundamental question of politics that we're seeing play out in the United States right now. You know, Bernie Saunders versus Donald Trump. Are we going to, at one time we thought, well, we had the myth of progress was being fulfilled with the election of Barack Obama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can say the same thing in Ontario, you know, Kathleen Wynne. <laughs> right. Things are get, looking up and we've turned a corner now and then you get Doug Ford. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Pendulum, yeah. Yeah, so who knows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there are still amongst Canadians, though, current 
ideas about what it means to be Canadian that are rooted in that 60s moment and are latent waiting to be exploited or tapped into perhaps and if the right uh, circumstances arise. The interesting thing is that neoliberalism, in other words, to put it in a different, in a different way, despite all of its triumphs in terms of uh, making the world safe for capitalism, it hasn't engineered or been the happy beneficiary of any kind of new nationalist moment that fuses its doctrine with Canadian identity. I think the Canadian identity, which is, you know, it might be in, in an attenuated form right now, but it's rooted in more social democratic um, notions, part of which include subsidy, subsidies for culture, support for Canadian culture. So it's, it's just a question of Justin Trudeau uh, embracing Canadian culture? I think, I think some politician could mobilize that. I think tr tr Justin Trudeau, as I mentioned, like you said, Canada's back, right? And he talks about Canadian values. He like uses that kind of rhetoric. He taps into it, but he doesn't actually act on it. It's just mostly about diversity. Yeah. <laughs> that we're past all of that. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's, he says we're past nationalism. We're post-nationalism yeah. at the same time that uh, he trades on nationalism extensively. This, this new emphasis on, on diversity, does that mean that our literary heritage should just be ignored? Because it is sort of mm. contra to... But it's not, though. There, it's a history yeah. of immigrants. We well, have. this is a big uh, political football, not yeah. just in, you know, in cultural policy, right? So if you look at the rise of identity politics since, this, since the 60s, the tendency of people who are advocates for various uh, causes in, in that realm is to vilify Canada for its past uh, racist policies. So in a way they're not going to embrace any form of Canadian nationalism because they see, as, see it as inherently celebratory. And, of that, and, yeah. Uh, it's white. And manipulative and white, yeah. Now, there's a counter-argument which is just saying that, okay, it took a while to get past those racist policies, but if you look at the diversity of Canada today and the, its ability to successfully be inclusive, that's rooted in Canada's Britishness. It goes all the way back to the fact that, you know, Britishness itself is a compound <laughs> yeah. of Welsh, Scots, yeah. Irish, Anglo-Saxons, yeah. Um, and that these kinds of accommodations of different ethnic groups are kind of in the DNA of Canada because of that. Yeah. It just was a matter of getting it beyond beyond the British to extend it to, you know, first of all, French. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. Um, other white European immigrant groups. And then yeah. gradually beyond that to include visible minorities and indigenous peoples. Yeah. And this has been a process. The argument is that there's something about Canadian political culture at its core mm. that made that easier than it would have been or it has been elsewhere. Okay. But, you know, that argument also gets critiqued for being another form of reactionary, <laughs> anglophilic, um, um, wishful thinking. Any other final thoughts about uh, government policy uh, and the book? One of the things that we mentioned in the wake of the Massey Commission 
um, was the contribution that universities made and federal funding for universities made to the health of the book industry mm. and to particularly Canadian books, you know, yeah. Canadian content. And uh, one of the arguments you could make is that the reason that some of these policies have been neglected or abandoned, or the values enforcement of them, you know, enforcing them in pursuit of Canadian values or better culture values, um, has been that the policies were successful. You know, nobody really worries about Canadian literature anymore. Mm. It seems to be well established. I'm thinking because of this because we're sitting in a, a department or a school that is a school of Canadian studies. It arose out of the uh, Canadianization movement and the, the fears about Americanization in the post-war period. And so there was a, a nationalist crusade for this which wanted to establish Canadian content as a legitimate object of study in the university. And uh, it was largely successful. Even though there aren't that many Canadian texts that are used in uh, education. Not, no, but there are, you know, it, is, it would have been considered a dubious proposition to study Canadian history or Canadian literature 70, 70 years ago, uh, yeah. 80 years ago, and now it's just accepted. And then on top of that, the university sector continues to grow. Like more, yeah. more uh, students are going to universities. It's, it's a business, is what it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, that might be the. That's the, a neoliberal. Uh, the gray lining of that uh, of that cloud. Those, I guess, are my only thoughts about how we shouldn't uh, despair quite yet. In other words, what in a way what we were talking about is a kind of what in economic terms they call an infant industry argument. You know, it needs to be in a hothouse for a while with some protection until it can <laughs> compete on its own. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps Canada is at a point in, in terms of Canadian literature that it, it can do that. But then, you know, you go back to the state of the publishing industry and say no. Um, That's the problem though. I don't really have a handle on if, how good it is now relative to how it used to be. It, it's always been in jeopardy, I think. It's a perilous yeah. trade, right? And writers are uh, struggling. They're making less, you know, the average income per exactly, writer, yeah. as it's reported, and who knows how those statistics work. And the, uh, the domination of the big publishing houses mean that uh, they're the only ones with the real marketing muscle to make a bestseller, mm -hmm. and they skim off the cream of the talent and appropriate it for their own, for their own profits. Mm -hmm. The Canadian uh, small publishers we were talking about who have a, you know, a Canadian mandate, um, they do all of the talent development. The, yeah, and then it gets stolen <laughs> and, and from they, them. They, they don't get to benefit from it. Yeah. So maybe we need new, a new Massey commission. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, when's the last commission that was uh, that was focused on, on culture? Uh, I guess the last big one would have been Apple Bomb a Bear in the 70s. But where all the action is right now is, the, you know, thinking again about the Broadcasting Act and mm -hmm. uh, regulation and whether that kind of regulation could be extended to uh, digital media and the internet. Yeah. Um, thinking about regulating big data mm -hmm. and taxing it. These discussions have got gained a lot more currency in just the last couple of years, I think, uh, because of a lot of the abuses of those big data companies. Yeah. Okay. So we've come to a very Canadian conclusion. It's time for another commission. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, sharing your thoughts. With oh, me. my pleasure.
I've been speaking with uh, Paul Litz, who's a professor of 20th century Canadian culture and political history at Carleton University in Ottawa. What are you working on right now? I'm working on a study of Huronia as a tourist region in um, Ontario, the southern Georgian Bay area, okay. in uh, the 1940s and 1950s. Hmm. Uh, and you could turn that into a book, I hope. I hope to. I, I was looking for something else to do with an IA at the end of its uh, title. So after Trudeau mania, it's Huronia. <laughs> very good. Thanks very much.